Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's good to have a few weeks off. Thank you, Pastor Ed, for filling in and uh, providing what I heard were incredibly, incredible and incredibly short sermons. So I figure I've got some extra time and I'm all rested and we're talking about God so I could be here all day. And if I go long enough, you guys will be praying for the rapture to happen. So that's... That's how this works. We've been in a series uh, looking at end times, and actually the first, this is the seventh week, and, and we've been looking at how the world is being prepared for the arrival of the Antichrist, and we've, we've talked about how uh, there's a sense of globalism, uh, there's this uh, idea of uh, humanism, and, and what it's done to our world, and how our world is beginning to challenge everything, and particularly everything about God, and it's not by accident. Uh, God told us this would happen, and so... If you're new, I would just encourage you to, you know, spend seven hours binging on the series. Um, and uh, if not, it's a great thing to fall asleep to. So uh, people use it in different ways. But, but we've been on this series. So let me show you the timeline. And I just want to walk through that for a minute. The title of the sermon today is, When Will the Believing Be Leaving? And that's really what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. We're going to talk about this idea of the rapture. And I want to remind you just the timeline because we're going to be looking at uh, these things. And what happens is we start throwing around these words and everybody goes, well, what are we talking about? And so I just want to keep taking us back to the timeline. Now, I've talked about before that I'm a premillennial rapture person, and we'll go into that in detail, uh, what that means. But basically, there is a church age that we are now in uh, that will end with the rapture of the church. That will lead us into seven years of tribulation, at which point Christ will return to defeat the Antichrist. Uh, so that's called the actual return of Christ. That ushers in a millennial reign of a thousand years where Christ is Lord on earth. And, and we'll talk about that in detail. And then there's an eternal state with a new heaven, a new earth, a new world. Uh, but today we're going to focus really on two things I want you to see on this map. One is the rapture of the church. And the second is the return of Christ, because they're two different events, and we're going to go through how we know that from Scripture. But you may be sitting here saying, okay, wait, 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 let's just, let's talk about what we're really saying here. I mean, what you're saying is that one day, in the blink of an eye, people are just going to vanish. Like one minute here, one minute gone, clothes crumped on the floor, no warning signs, no aura, just gone. Like, like... And it's only going to be believers, right? I mean, when you listen to that, you think, who came up with that idea? That, that sounds crazy. We used to play rapture jokes on my sister. My brother and I would leave our clothes crumpled on the floor. and That's another story. But think about what we're saying. Airplanes fall from the sky. Surgeries stop mid-surgery. Cars without drivers. Family members gone. No explanation. No understanding. People just vanish. According to the 2004 Newsweek poll, 55% of Americans believe the faithful will be taken to heaven in the rapture. That's 2004. Today, about 40%. I think that number is astronomically too high. Um, but that's what people say. The worldwide number is about 12%. So why is there disagreement? And where does this idea of the rapture come from? In a recent poll of a thousand senior pastors of large churches in America, I didn't get one, uh, but it's a thousand people, one in four pastors in the U.S. do not believe in a literal rapture. 
1% believe it's already happened. 4%, wait for this, 4% say they have no idea. No one surveyed me, but I'm stunned because there's stuff in Scripture that's been there and hasn't changed in thousands of years. This is not a topic God wanted us to be confused about. So where does this crazy idea come from? Did people just dream it up? Was it wishful thinking? People got into a horrible situation on earth and said, Jesus, come get me, and it just propagated, and this is something that believers are just kind of hoping is going to happen? 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Paul speaking. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, you can't go to heaven with a fallen body. Behold, I tell you a mystery, Paul says. We shall not all sleep, die, but we will all be changed. Paul's speaking to brothers. That means believers in Christ. He's saying that our bodies, our flesh is dying away. It's full of disease and it's under the curse of sin. It has death as its destination. Our physical bodies are going to die. And what is dying cannot inherit what is eternal. In other words, we can't go to heaven in our fallen state or our fallen bodies. When we accepted Jesus as our Savior, we received the Holy Spirit, and now we are eternal spiritually. But our bodies are destined for the grave. It is the curse of sin. Paul says, look, I'm going to tell you a mystery. A mystery is not a riddle in the Bible. It's not something that you figure out on your own. In Scripture, when they talk about a mystery, it's simply a thing to be understood spiritually that would not be known to you unless God himself revealed it to you. Not something you would ever have a clue about unless God revealed it. You can't get there through human perception. It's not possible. Paul's going to tell the Corinthians something they could not have known by reason or research or have ever figured out. It is a mystery from God through Paul to them. They would not know it unless God chose to reveal it. He says, we shall not all sleep. Sleep was a word used by Christians to denote those who died as believers. They weren't gone, they weren't forever lost, they're not dead, they're just asleep. Their soul went to heaven to be with Jesus, their body's asleep in the grave. They're waiting to be awoken by Jesus. Paul, though, says, look, not all of us are going to die. We shall not all sleep. Now, there's no way he could know this unless God revealed it to him. It takes supernatural revelation. Thus he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. You can imagine Paul now has their full attention. In their world, they're being martyred. They leave this room and they go out and they're being shot at. They're being killed. They're being martyred for the faith. Every believer at that time probably thought their destination was martyrdom. Death was expected if you were going to follow Jesus. He died, you will die. They tortured him, they're going to torture you. And Paul says there's going to be a final generation. There's going to be a generation of people who will be transformed into their resurrection bodies before they ever face death. You can almost hear them all going, no, wait a minute, how's that going to happen? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, 
The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. That word change means completely different, completely new. In a split second, he says, as fast as a blink. The last trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, and other believers will be changed. It'll be unobservable to the human eye. It will happen so fast. There'll come a day in God's eternal plan, a day that he has predestined. He gives those who have died in the Lord, those believers since Jesus came over the last 2,000 years who have died, the people that we know, the people we love, the people we've missed. He's going to instantly gather them to meet Jesus in the air. All the redeemed on earth, the believers who are alive at that time, will rise to meet the Lord in the clouds and receive their resurrection bodies. That's what we call the rapture. So let's make sure we don't get confused. Those who are in Christ, those who have surrendered their lives to Christ, those who've heard what Jesus did on the cross and accepted his sacrifice in their place, those are New Testament believers, you and me and every Christian we've ever met. Many of them have died or fallen asleep. Their life is not over, they're just in a new state. Their spirit or soul is with Jesus, their body is in the grave or has been cremated. 2 Corinthians 5, 6. Therefore, be always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home at the Lord. Paul is clear that when our spirit exits our human body, we're instantaneously with the Lord. Either the present dead in Christ are with the Lord in spiritual body, awaiting their resurrection body, or because the nature of eternity they've received their resurrection bodies, they live in the eternal now. Those who died in Christ will rise first, he says. Our friends, our family, the people that have gone ahead of us, the people that were here with Jesus. Now, Paul further explains this in the letter to, the Thess to Thessalonica. See, they were very concerned about the loved ones who died. They, they, they needed to know what happened to them. They wanted to have hope. It's okay that my brother was martyred. I just need to know where he is and what's going on. It's okay for me to be martyred. Just tell me what's going to happen. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Same context, what's going to happen? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, though, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. Paul reiterates, those who have died are with Jesus. For those who believe to be separate from the body is to be present with Jesus. Paul says there will be a day when Jesus, along with all believers who have died, will come back. We'll talk about that. The Thessalonians, they were concerned that when they died, their loved ones might not be there to receive them. They thought they might be in some kind of suspended spiritual state. And Paul says, no, they're coming back. They're, you're going to see them and we're all going to be with Jesus. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those that have fallen asleep. Okay, in other words, our friends and family who have died will be resurrected before we will. Paul says, I declare for you a word from the Lord. In other words, this is a mystery. This is a supernatural revelation from God. This is something I didn't come up with. It's not something you can deduce. It's not something you would have figured out. It's not what we think will happen. It's not what we hope will happen. God has specifically revealed this truth to us. He addresses two groups. Those who have died and those who are alive on that day. Those who have died will be with Jesus. Those who are alive are going to be with Jesus. And we're, if we're alive at that time, we will go after those who've fallen asleep. So when the rapture occurs, those who have died, our friends, families, and others who have died over the last 2,000 years, will be brought first, and then we will meet everybody in the clouds with Jesus immediately thereafter. So you can almost hear them saying, how's that going to happen again? What? what? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Note, the Lord will descend from heaven with the voice of an archangel and the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, you guys know I'm a Civil War buff, but during the Civil War uh, at Manassas, uh, the first battle of the Civil War, the Union got totally clobbered uh, and a bunch of people died. And they buried them in very shallow graves. And the, the people were buried there. Um, uh, it didn't take long for the soil to erode. So a year later, another battle at the same battlefield, there were corpses literally unearthed laying on the battlefield. That didn't deter them. They went and had the battle. But many of them had to sleep on the battlefield with the corpses all night long. That night, it snowed very heavily. The pastor, one of the chaplains that was with the Union Army said, when they, they played uh, Reveille that morning, those who were alive on the field stood up. Those who had died a year before remained there. He said, it has to be the closest explanation of what this is going to look like. He said, the trumpet, the, the bugle blew, and those who were alive rose said it took him immediately to the passage from 1 Corinthians. Paul continues, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Why, why do we encourage ourselves? Because it sounds crazy. I mean, honestly, this sounds ludicrous. I mean, no wonder people don't understand or believe in the right, because it's like, where did you come up with this? All your friends and family who believe in the Lord are going to be resurrected. They're going to go up into the clouds, and we're going to go meet them up in the clouds and be with Jesus forever. Yeah, that's exactly what God's Word says. We who are alive will be caught up. The word used in Greek is harpazo or apazo. It means to snatch away, to seize away. The word rapture is not found in the ancient Greek Bible until it was translated into Latin. It wasn't until about 405 AD that the Bible was translated into Latin. And in the Vulgate, the Latin translation, the word for harpazo is rapturus, which is where we get the word rapture. Notice that Jesus descends from heaven, but notice where he's located. Not on earth, 
not on the Mount of Olives like we learned about a few weeks ago. He's in the clouds. Simply stated, the rapture of the church is the first phase of Christ's coming. It's the intersection between two events, the resurrection of the dead, specifically believers who've died, and the transformation of living believers. All will be immediately together in the presence of God. Now, when we speak of Jesus' second coming, we're really talking about one event that happens in two phases. In both cases, Jesus descends from heaven. The rapture is the first phase where he descends to the clouds. The second phase is the literal return of Jesus to earth. It'll occur at the end of tribulation when Jesus returns physically to earth, stands on the Mount of Olives, returns just as he went up, just as promised, and will lead his army to destroy the Antichrist at Armageddon. We're going to get through all that through Revelation. When the rapture occurs, Jesus will descend from heaven accompanied by the perfected spirits that have died. Okay, in other words, everybody who has died, who's a believer in Christ, who has died since Christ was here, the minute they died, they are with Jesus spiritually. Okay? They will return at the rapture. All who have died will rise first and get their resurrection bodies. We who are alive at the end of that will go next. Okay? The rapture of the soul and the body which falls asleep at death will be reunited. According to our verse, the Lord will bring the perfect spirit of each believer from heaven when he comes, and the body of each believer will be raised up incorruptible, immortal, and imperishable to meet his spirit in the air and be united forever. To better understand this, let's just make sure we all understand what death is. Death in the Bible always means separation and never annihilation. No one gets annihilated. You're going to spend eternity somewhere. People, when they die, do not cease to exist. Their spirit goes on. Remember that death was brought in only because of sin. It was not God's original plan for us. We are created in God's image. He is eternal. We are eternal. The question is, where are you going to spend it? But sin is so despicable in the presence of God and His holiness that every bit of it had to be eradicated before we could reestablish our standing and relationship with God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they died spiritually. He says, if you eat that fruit, you will die. They did, spiritually, dead, physically alive. Walking the planet without the presence of God over them or in them. They were immediately separated from God. From that point on, every person born into this world has been spiritually dead and separated from God at birth. Non-believers are dead spiritually. Those who surrender to Jesus are born again spiritually. The spirit could not inhabit their body in the fallen state, but because of the blood of Jesus, we become spiritually alive again. The problem is that our bodies are still under the weight of sin. Our spirit has been resurrected. So death, what the world calls death, is the separation of our decaying spiritual bodies, this temporary tent, while our spirit goes on. So when a believer dies or falls asleep, their physical body is buried or cremated and their spirit immediately goes to heaven. If the person is a believer in Christ, they're... Their time for believers in heaven, where Paul calls it, 
They're naked. They're believers. They're in heaven. They're with Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5.1 For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. When you believe in Jesus, you receive the Spirit of God. It is your stamp of of promise that on one day you will be resurrected with Christ and get a new glorified body for eternity. The scriptures are absolutely clear that once a believer dies, his or her soul goes immediately into the conscious presence of the Lord. Luke 23, 41. And he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom man on the cross. And he said to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. Acts 7.55, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed, talking about Stephen, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they were stoning Stephen. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. 2 Corinthians 5.8, yes, we are of good courage, and we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The scriptures are clear that when we die, we as believers are immediately with Jesus. Paul said it over and over, I'd rather be home with Jesus than to be here with you. He didn't say, I'd rather be in some animated, suspended state. I want to be with Jesus. Now, the rapture will occur in a split second. Corpses all over the world will be raised, reunited with their perfected spirits, and living believers everywhere will be caught up to heaven and transform body, soul, and spirit. The rapture will shock the world. It will change everything. Crazy, right? I mean, people find this idea of the instant disappearance of millions of people difficult to accept. You know why? It's difficult to accept. You'll hear them say, nothing like that's ever happened before. Yes, that's true. Sort of. You see, we speak all the time in the Bible about foreshadowing. Almost nothing happens in the Bible that isn't foreshadowed in the Old Testament. For example, I believe Hitler was a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. World leader, came from nowhere, thought he was God, hated the Jews. The entire Old Testament is a foreshadowing. So it's not surprising that we see glimpses of the rapture in Scripture. Let me show you a few. Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Pretty simple, right? A lot in one, well, he was walking and now he's not. 2 Kings 2.10, Elijah speaking. You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken away from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they, they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind to heaven. 
Speaking of Jesus, Revelation 12, 5, she gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she's been prepared by God, which is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So it's by studying these episodes that foreshadow the rapture, we can know things about how to look at the final rapture of the church. The first thing we can learn from looking at the Old Testament is when the scriptures talk about a rapture being caught up, it's literal, it's not figurative. It really happens. Elijah disappeared. Enoch walked with God and he wasn't. It wasn't some spiritual sort of thought process. And the rapture of the church won't be some symbolic event. Given the literal translation of at least six raptures that have occurred, we can guess that the final rapture will be literal just as the other ones were. Second, it'll be a physical transfer. In each of the other raptures, people were physically transferred from one location to another. Five out of the six involved a transfer from earth to heaven. Philip was moved from one place to another on earth. Third, it'll be sudden. When it says sudden, it means sudden. All the historical raptures happened suddenly with no warning. Enoch was a perfect example. He was there, he was not. That'll be the case with the rapture of the church. So Enoch seems to have been in some form raptured. Elijah was caught up to heaven and later appeared with Moses to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, witnessed by Peter, James, and John. He didn't die. He was caught up in the spirit to heaven. He appears in bodily form. Peter recognized him. That is Elijah. And it's witnessed by Peter, James, and John. Paul spoke of the rapture to those who were worried about loved ones who died. Jesus himself was taken up to heaven as the first fruit of the resurrection. But you might be wondering, okay, well, that's great. Paul talked about a lot of things. I don't like Paul. But anyway, did Jesus ever talk about the rapture? I mean, it seems like a really big point, doesn't it? I mean, something really important. It seems like Jesus would have mentioned this like thing. I mean, it's something unusual. It's a mystery, Paul called it. Surely Jesus knew about it. Everything's foreshadowed. Clearly Jesus had to say something about this incredible event. You see, the concept of believers being caught up to heaven without dying was a new truth, meaning that it was revealed as purpose. But it was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It was hidden from God until he revealed it fully through Paul. But he gives a talk about the rapture through Jesus. Look at Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, of, nor the Son but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Did Noah happen? Jesus said so. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left, Jesus says. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Two people, then one. 
The Greek word here means to be taken into fellowship. Note that there were two. One is taken, one is left. It's very clear. There's no doubt what he's talking about. Jesus says, just as in the day of Noah, which validates the ark, the historical truth of the ark. Everybody unaware until it happened. Also note, Jesus is very specific here. The rapture is for all believers who are alive. Also note, he says, two men in the field, two women grinding at the mill. This rapture is for everybody. Very unusual to make a specific statement about women. But that's what Jesus does. He didn't want there to be any doubt. Millions of believers will be clothed in their new glorified bodies in the time it takes to blink an eye. That's the thrilling mystery of the rapture. We may be the terminal generation. Have you thought about that? I preached a series five years ago, and I said, I can't believe we're still here. Guess what? I can't believe we're still here. Every day I wake up thinking this could be the day. This could be the day we go home. Our world is closer to this event than it's ever been. No believers in the history of Christianity have been as close to the return of Jesus as we are. We could be the terminal generation. If that doesn't fire you up, I don't know what would. We may be the ones that experience the rapture. Think what it would be for all eternity to be part of the generation that never experienced the sting of death. Even when we believe it'll happen, it still blows your mind, doesn't it? What will it be like? Many of us stand like Mary did when she was told she was going to birth the Messiah. She trusted God. She knew it would happen, but she asked, how can this be? How is this going to happen? That's how we all respond to supernatural things. They're supernatural. They're not explained by the natural not doubt, more fascination. How's that going to happen? Jesus will descend to the clouds, note, not to the earth yet, and everyone who shares his life will fly up to meet him. All who are in Christ will be caught up to meet him in the air. Those that don't know him, those who choose not to know him, those who don't share his life will be left behind. Now we're going to spend two more weeks going into the details of the rapture. But I want to explain why I believe it is both literal and imminent. We need to make sure we're all clear about the three types of believers that are on the earth. Think about it. There are three types of believers in Jesus Christ. One group lived in the Old Testament before Jesus came. They believed in the promise of the Messiah to come. They trusted God's law and what he revealed in Scripture to be true. They weren't here when Jesus was here, but they firmly believed that he was coming and the promised Messiah. Faith in him, faith in Jesus, as the coming Messiah is what provides them with salvation. Those are people we're talking about. Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elijah, Daniel, Joseph, everybody who trusted that the Messiah is coming. They have died. Their spirits are with Jesus. These people are referred to as Old Testament saints or Old Testament believers. Okay, so that's one group, Old Testament saints. Second group of believers are easy for us. These are the people who came to believe in Jesus while he was on earth, after he was on earth. It includes us. Everybody in the Gentile period or the church age. 
They're all believed because of the testimony of those who've gone ahead of them. That would include all of us. It includes the disciples, Paul, all the believers in Acts, the people in the Romans church, everybody up until today, all believers in the church age. So guess what? They're called church age believers or the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ is very specific to people who come to know Christ through the testimony of others. The third group are those who will come to believe in Jesus after the rapture during the tribulation. They're not called the bride of Christ, they're called tribulation saints. Now it's important to note that there's two groups of tribulation saints. One are those who are martyred for their faith, and we'll see in Revelation where they're crying out for justice, remember? Okay, so there are people that after the rapture are going to profess their faith in Christ and be beheaded, specifically killed in that way, many, many of them. They are called tribulation martyrs. Tribulation saints are people who come to know Christ and survive the tribulation. Okay, so we're going to get to that too and explain why that difference is important. Now, the minute we die, it's very important to know that all believers in all three groups are instantly with Jesus the minute they die. Everybody. Our physical bodies cease to be, but our spirit is instantly in the presence of the Lord. That's true for all groups of believers. If our soul is with Jesus, then when do we get our resurrection bodies? Fair question. We're all promised resurrection bodies. The first person to be resurrected was Jesus himself. He was the first fruit. Immediately after his resurrection, some of the Old Testament saints were seen walking through Jerusalem resurrected. Now some people read that as all Old Testament saints were resurrected. Most people believe that what the scriptures are saying is that much like Lazarus and, and other people, they resurrected in this life, they eventually died and they will be with everybody else. We'll get into that, don't worry. The first group to receive their resurrection bodies will be the church age, us. Those who are called the bride of Christ. Those who have already died will get their body first. We will get ours immediately after that if we're still alive. We get our body when we meet Jesus in the crowd. We are his bride and to be fully restored in the body in that instant. After the rapture, and we're gonna go into great detail about this for two weeks, we've got a lot to do in heaven during the tribulation before we return with Jesus. We'll talk about that. The next group to receive their glorified bodies are the Old Testament saints, and they get their bodies when Jesus returns at the second coming. Okay, after the tribulation, when he comes back to destroy the Antichrist, all the saint, Old Testament saints receive their body. There'll be a time of distress as never seen before. And at that time, your people, everyone found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who are asleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and contempt. At the end of tribulation, we enter the millennial kingdom. Remember, Jesus comes back. He destroys the Antichrist. He develops a kingdom on earth for a thousand years. It'll be populated by three groups of people. Okay, now we're going to go over this several times, so don't freak. It'll be populated by all those who've received glorified bodies. Old Testament saints, church age saints, that's us, and tribulation martyrs. Okay? It'll also be populated by tribulation believers 
who have not yet received their glorified bodies. Again, we're going to go into this in detail. Those who are alive at the end of tribulation will be separated as goats and sheep to enter into the millennial kingdom or to enter into hell. Thus, the millennial kingdom will begin a home to all believers from all time. As I said, several groups, church age saints, us, Old Testament saints, all the people, David, all those people, tribulation martyrs. But those who survive the tribulation, new believers who come to know Christ during the tribulation and survive, go into the millennial kingdom as humans. Believers, humans. When Jesus says he separates the goats and the sheep, they are the sheep. They survive the tribulation. They will go into the millennial kingdom as believers. They will populate. They will be human form. All those who have resurrected bodies will not populate. So once they get to the millennial kingdom, there'll be a group of people who have children, and they'll have children, and they'll have children. And after a thousand years, Satan's going to convince some of those people that they too can be God. And we're going to eventually see the final destruction. It is the children of believers who will eventually align with Satan for one last rebellion. Again, we're going to go into all this. What about non-believers? The Bible clearly tells us that the bodies of believers and non-believers will be resurrected. Okay? A lot of people want to believe, well, I'll get to that in a minute. John 5, 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All. And come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life. Those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everybody gets resurrected. Acts 24, 14. But I confess this to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. There seems to be universal agreement that the bodies of unbelievers will not be resurrected till after the millennium, after the thousand-year reign, and what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. They will then be cast into the fire called the Lake of Fire for all of eternity. So you may be wondering, if we're instantly with Jesus when we die, what about those who reject him? Where do they go? Where do they go between the time they die physically and they're eternally judged at the end of the millennium? Are they in some suspended state, kind of intermediate holding station? Are they in hell? The only mention of this in Scripture seems to come from a story that Jesus teaches about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now it's unclear if this text is prescriptive for all non-believers who died. But it's clear, Jesus is clear, for this person, he was in Hades and in torment. Clearly before the great white throne judgment to come at the end of the millennium. This has led some to believe, including Catholics, that Hades is a temporary holding place 
until the lake of fire for those who don't believe. They could be right. Where I think they're misguided is there's nothing in Scripture to suggest that their ultimate determination can be based on anything believers do here on earth for them. No amount of money, no amount of prayers, no amount of rose, whatever. There's nothing in Scripture that says that. So what do you need to know about non-believers? Well, really, there's only one thing you need to know. They're not with Jesus. We can say a few things about non-believers at their death. They're not with Jesus. They're in a place of torment that Jesus called Hades. And upon their resurrection at the end of the millennium, they'll be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. I wish the God in the Bible said something different. I I wish non-believers would just cease to exist. Going to a place of eternal separation and fire bothers me. I don't like it. I'd like for that not to be true. But again, I tend to underestimate the holiness of God and the offense of sin and the requirement that he has to be just in his punishment of the rejection of Christ. So it doesn't matter what I wish was true. If you believe the truth about the rapture and heaven, then you have to accept the truth about the judgment of non-believers in hell. You can't have one without the other. We're not to have faith in our ideas or our wishes or our hopes Our faith is based on the truth as it's revealed in God's Word. God says they go to Hades and the lake of fire. Full stop. That's it. So what do we do with all this? Will you be left behind? Will it literally take the rapture to get you to finally believe that God is who He says He is? And that He'll do what He said He'll do? Are you going to wait until the rapture? What if you don't survive the rapture? Have you thought about that? If you've rejected Jesus, you want to make sure your next pilot's a non-believer. Your surgeon doesn't know Jesus, and you're prepping well for the worst time in human history. At least until you go to hell. Not my words, God's. You've got to prep for that too. If you survive the rapture, are you going to be the one that tells others and your family members and friends said this would happen? God's word has not been wrong yet. Not once. Not once in all of human history. The rapture is an integral part of his story. You take it out, you don't have a story. Why would we think this is not going to happen? God says it's going to happen like he said everything else is going to happen. I want you to know today that if you die... You can live free of fear before then, and that death can have no hold on you. The victory Jesus secured for you is available to you if you want it. Let me take you back for a moment and look at the passage we started with. Paul says we're to encourage each other with these words. Let me show you why knowing Jesus shows so much peace. 1 Corinthians 15. For this perishable body must, be, must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 1 Corinthians 15, next verse. 
The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what Paul's saying. Paul's saying here is if you believe in Jesus, you will never die. Never. You're already eternal. You can stop counting birthdays. They're going to keep going for a really, really long time. Never. Not for a second do you experience death. In the blink of an eye, you will be in the presence of Jesus forever. That's the destination for every believer who's ever lived. Here one moment with Jesus the next. Whether we're raptured, whether our physical bodies die first, we're going to be with Jesus. Do you know what that means? For believers who are alive right now, I say this all the time, Jesus is coming back really soon. I can almost guarantee you Jesus is coming back in the next 50 years. How do I know that? Either you're going to be raptured or you're going to die. Most of us are not going to be here 50 years from now. Some of the younger, okay, I get it. Let's say 75 years. It's not that we have eternity to figure this out. You have your life to figure this out, and it could be done today. So we all can get ready to meet Jesus in the next 75 years. Either because we're going to die or we're going to get raptured, but either way, we need to be ready to be in the presence of Jesus at any moment. So what are we to do between now and then? Are we to stop making plans, stop preparing for the future, spend our 401k, stop living our lives? Let's look at what Paul suggested, because we can learn all about the rapture, but if it doesn't change what we do, we've wasted our time here this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul continues, Therefore, my beloved, in other words, based on everything I've just said, brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor's not in vain. Be steadfast. Don't waver from the course God has put in front of you. Get busy doing the kingdom. Get busy with your first love. Prepare for the future. Prepare yourself. Help prepare others. Be immovable. Don't let doubters persuade you. Don't get complacent. Don't get caught off guard. Abound in God's work. There's a lot to do in these last days. We are all called to our battle stations. And as you get closer and closer to the end of times, be inspired. Your work, your sacrifice is not in vain. I don't want anyone to leave here today not knowing for sure that you will not be left behind. To know for sure that you've accepted Jesus as your Savior. You see, some people have accepted Jesus with their words, but never with their heart. Let me repeat that. I believe churches are full of people who have accepted Jesus with words, but not with their heart. And they're going to be very surprised. Maybe one day you said a prayer, but you know your heart wasn't really in it. Jesus examines the heart. Maybe you want what Jesus promises, but you really haven't surrendered to him as Lord. You see, you want a Savior, but you don't want a Lord. You want a Savior, but you still want to be in control. You still want to charge. He's okay as long as he does what you want. That's not what he offers. 
His truth includes rapture, heaven, Hades, and the lake of fire. So you embrace him fully or not at all? There's no other choice. No matter how far you've wandered, you haven't gone too far. Just admit to God what he already knows. You've chosen sinful actions. We've all done it. We're all still doing it. No one is responsible for that except you. Don't blame other people. You chose to do what you did. Every decision you've ever made in your life brings you to this room right now. No excuses. We've all done things. We have hurt God. We've hurt other people. Our sins have made the world a worse place. We like to think we're better than other people, but that doesn't change the fact that we're sinful. You have to acknowledge how much your sins have offended a holy God. How it's actually just that a holy God would punish you for all of eternity for rejecting him for all of eternity. You need to confess those sins and promise that with God's help, you'll turn from your sinful ways, choose to do life God's way, trusting that Jesus took your place on the cross because you really do deserve to be punished for what you've done. He took the wrath for you. He stood on the cross and took everything. He took God's wrath for you on the cross, every bit of it, even the sins you haven't thought of yet. He took it for you because you couldn't survive on your own, paying the punishment for your sin. It's called eternal damnation, and God doesn't want anyone to go there. All you have to do is acknowledge those truths. You're a sinner. You've done life your way instead of God's way. It's time to come home. But let me tell you something. You can't have him as your Savior without having him as your Lord. He has to become the most important thing in your life. You have to surrender everything to him. Who you are, your life, your values, your purpose, your truth gets surrendered to his truth. It's all in. It's not a game. It's not say a prayer and you're prayed, oh boy, everybody celebrate heaven. That's not how it works. You come to Jesus from your heart and your heart is convicted and broken and you're aware that you need to be saved from yourself. For the next few moments, I think many of us need to do business with God. You may feel God prompting you to trust Jesus for the first time today. If that's you, I want to say a prayer in a minute. I just want you to pray along with me. Nobody, just you and God. Others of us need to get on the altar and on our faces and acknowledge to God that we haven't put his kingdom first. That we are here at the end times and we need to get on board with what's happening. And we need to thank God that we know our salvation is secure. Your relationship with Jesus must, must become the most important thing in your life. I say it every week. It's the same message. Surrender more of yourself so you can receive more of him. Only you can do that for yourself. Paul says, encourage one another with these words. The rapture was designed to be an encouragement to us, not a freaked out fear. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you were clear in your word about our future. You didn't want us to be unaware. You didn't want us to worry. You overcame death for us, but you also wanted to overcome the fear of death for us. So God, we've learned a lot today. We've looked at your word. 
But if that doesn't prompt us to become more focused, more bold, more aware, then we need to consider this longer and pray longer. God, right now I know there are people either in this room or online who are questioning all of this. And God, I just pray that you would move in their hearts right now. This is between you and them. Your spirit has gone ahead. We don't save anybody. You do. So God, I pray that the people that you've already prepared for this message are recognizing that you're speaking to them. Allow them, God, to confess what they've not been able to confess before. Allow them, God, to surrender what they've never surrendered before. Allow them, to God, to receive what they could never have received before. If that's you, I'm just going to ask you to pray, God, I'm a sinner. I've done some horrible things. I've hurt a lot of people, but I've also hurt you. And even though I may be better than some others, I'm still far from where I know you want me to be. And I want to come home. I know Jesus died on the cross. I know he resurrected. I know he paid the price for me. And I'm accepting that gift with every ounce of my being from my heart. I don't want to keep living the way I've been living. I don't want to keep doing what I've been doing. I need your power, your spirit, to change this heart of mine to become more like you. So God, I pray for those who have the boldness to confess today to step towards you and not run away from you. Maybe to realize they've been running from you and now they ran right into you. God, please, please don't let this moment go. Our past is gone. Our future is yet to be. But our present is a gift from you. That's why we call it present. We live in this moment, God. Work in this moment in this room. God, please, I pray that no one leaves this room without knowing that they have overcome death through Christ. And it's in his name we pray.